Software Engineering Radio Episode 85, Olaf Zimmermann on Web Services. Welcome listeners to another episode of Software Engineering Radio. Once again, we are at the Uppsala conference. We've already been here last year recording a couple of interviews. Um, we are here this year again. And before we actually start, we want to thank Dick Gabriel, the conference chair, for making it possible that we can actually use the press room. So it seems like we're now kind of accepted. Well, maybe it's just because I know, it, I know Dick. Anyway, um, in this episode, we're going to talk about web services in the context of SOA. And to do that, we have Olaf Zimmermann as a guest. And uh, Olaf, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Markus. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I'm uh, Olaf Zimmermann, as you guys already know. I've been working for IBM since uh, the beginning of my career, back in 94. For the large number of years, I was in professional services. So the, the IBM Global Services, helping IBM clients, uh, developing enterprise applications, integrating them. And from 2001 on, I applied SOA principles and patterns, as well as web services technologies to do so. For the last uh, year and a half, uh, I've been working in the IBM Zurich Research Lab. Still the same topic, SOA and web services design, but now looking at these topics for a scientific, for a researcher's perspective, rather than that of a solution architect or consultant. Mm -hmm. And this is a nice um, distinction because we've already had people like Nico on the show who talked very pragmatically about web service, uh, sorry, about SOA in general. So in this episode, we want to look at not so much SOA as an architectural style, but rather really at how to do it with web services, looking a little bit about the standards. But to do that, we should maybe really start briefly by uh, looking at the general challenges in enterprise application development and keep, keeping that short because we've had that before, but just to set the context. Sure, and I'll be happy to share quite a few road stories, things that worked, <laughs> things that didn't work yeah. in the current uh, implementations of the principles and patterns. Right. I like to define SOA as an architectural style, addressing these uh, challenges in, in enterprise application development and computing. There is no greenfield. You're, <laughs> you're always integrating, you're always starting from some legacy code, some existing system, and these systems... Uh, Many of them have been running for decades, if not longer. If we look at banks or, or insurance companies, also telecommunications companies. So we find all the technologies you can think of, all the, all the clever things uh, the Uppsala community and, and other smart people have come up with over the last 20-something years. You find them in these systems, so it's mm -hmm. very, very hard to integrate them. So we do have a need for, for some cross-cutting technology, uh, some, some concepts and principles that make the connections between these rather heterogeneous technical words. Mm -hmm. If we try to look at the motivations and the more technical challenges, I mean, you, you already mentioned the integration challenge. It's clearly the driving factor. Are there other motivations or drivers for SOA that, that we need to keep in mind and maybe also that then lead to a solution based on web services as opposed to using, I don't know, let's say Corba or JMS? Yes. I'll now uh, support uh, some statements Nico probably has made and take a very, very pragmatic view on things. Okay. I like technologies that, uh, that work and that don't, tools that don't get in my way. Yep. So let's briefly review uh, the, the value proposition of SOA. Uh, what we see there is uh, it's, it's, uh, a big quest for you know, more agility, more flexibility. Time to market is key. Right? We can't, can no longer afford spending 12 months uh, 
as much as we as consultants would like that, <laughs> having a fixed price engagement for, for yeah. like 12 months. Yeah. The market no longer tolerates that, so we do need to speed up uh, the development and integration cycles. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the promises of SOA, uh, facing this uh, technical heterogeneity I talked about. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at the web services technologies, what I really like about them is um, that they're, uh, even even there's a perceived complexity now, or the, they're perceived to be complex now, this WS star jungle, or death star, some yeah. people talk about. <laughs> The original idea, the core, if we just look at the core, using XML to describe service contracts and uh, express service invocations, request, yep. request messages and response messages, the original idea is very, very simple. And anybody can play. You don't need a big object request broker. Yep. You mentioned Corba. Yeah. Uh, what you need is basically an, a text editor and the ability to, to read and write XML, and you play, you, uh, as a, both as a human being and as a technology vendor or technology stack. Yeah. You're in the game. So that's the, the, the essence of the web services technology. But that, that sounds to me quite a bit more like what the rest folks propose. I mean, keeping it, getting back to the, to the real essence. And, I mean, while this is certainly, well, there's this discussion, right? REST versus WS everything. Um, any opinion on that? Although we'll probably talk most about the WS star things, but, I mean... I'm really glad you bring that topic up uh, rather early on. <laughs> I do have an opinion there. Uh, well, provocative statement. Uh, I think uh, a good share of the debate is totally pointless. Uh, I do believe that the WS star specifications, if you just compare the things that uh, the Restafarians propose and promote, <laughs> and the people in the rest camp, sure. um, the WS star, uh, the core of it does implement these concepts. So I don't think mm -hmm. I don't see it's it's a pointless debate. Uh, the, the architectural principles we see in the rest style. They are, they are present in the WS star technology. Yes, there's lots of optional specifications, that big WS star jungle, but you don't have to use all of those things yeah. if you don't have uh, requirements. Right, so maybe the point is, if you, don't, if you use REST style, you don't get those things anyway. So you should compare REST with the core Absolutely. WS thing and not with all the other stuff. Absolutely. That's so, a fair point. So yeah. one metaphor I like to use there, that's actually my, my research topic at the moment, is the notion of architectural decisions and architecture alternatives. Mm -hmm. So I compared um, WS star-based integration with REST-based integration. We listed the architecture decisions to be made, the number of options available, and the consequences of these design options. And it turns out that in WS Starland, you have to decide more. There's more options, yes. more freedom of choice, yeah. whereas in REST, you have freedom from choice. <laughs> you know, the transport protocol is defined for you. It's HTTP, yeah. full yeah. stop. Um, so there's more freedom, more, more flexibility in the WS Starland, but if you stick to the equivalent architectural choices, the, the two technology options are remarkably similar. You mm -hmm. just have some more tool support in, in WS Starland. Right. I know that this is quite a provocative statement and very different to a lot of the, yeah. from my point of view, rather uninformed and, and a bit naive uh, statements that you find in a lot of the, the, in the blogosphere yeah. on the internet. At some point, we'll probably have somebody from the rest world uh, to just to, to, to show the other side, but um, I didn't plan anything there yet. I just You probably follow Steve Janoski's stuff. You probably saw the discussion recently. Well, anyway, so he was in the, in the enterprise, you know him. So in this Iona sphere, and now he's somewhere else. Nobody knows where. But he says he uses Ruby and REST stuff, and it's so much more productive. So he, he cr created quite a stir. Uh, about these things so that was actually quite funny by the way by the time you'll hear this um, that thing has probably been away a couple of months so <laughs> it's not really an in time comment maybe I cut this out 
Okay, so let's look at the building blocks um, of an SOA. Um, you've, you've structured them into three levels of abstraction. Yeah, sure. So uh, what we at IBM like to do is, uh, you know, when we're looking for a definition for SOA, the observation is there is no single one, right? Even if each and every vendor and each and every book author has one. Yep. I stopped it <laughs> counting at 50 or so. Yeah. So what we, what we say is uh, we, we tackle the definition problem by role. Um, you know, from the business analyst, domain expert standpoint, you know, this notion of being business aligned comes in, having very yeah. expressive service contracts, fair enough. But we're in the software engineering radio session here, so we do care about the, the, the more technical aspects. Yeah. So from an IT architect's standpoint, SOA is an architectural style. An architectural style defines itself through its principles and patterns, uh, according to Bas Katzman. So the, for me, the, the, the core principles are good old software engineering principles, uh, that's why some a lot of people say same old architecture and not right. service-oriented architecture. Yeah. Things like logical layering, modularization, encapsulation, loose coupling, of course. And maybe a little difference if you brought the corporate topic up, uh, a message, uh, document messaging, um, which means to, to invoke services, uh, to, have, uh, to implement the client-server connectivity. We, we no longer do RPC calls for uh, shared object request broker, uh, we do send flat text or in the web services case, uh, XML documents. Mm -hmm. So which, which is uh, much more flexible than having, a, uh, having to implement a remote garbage collector and, 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 a, and a real object request broker. Yeah, although they, these things are probably different. I mean, you, on, on the one hand side, you have the fact that you send XML documents as messages, i.e. decoupled and asynchronous. And the other aspect is whether the thing on the other side is actually stateful and has to be garbage collected. I mean, you can do a stateless, a stateless RPC architecture where you don't have this garbage collection issue. F fair point. You don't have the garbage collection issue, but you do have the uh, remote References, uh, which right. might not go through firewalls. Yeah. You, have, you have the assumption that uh, if you look at EGBs, the remote uh, EGB contract, uh, you have to be on the same JVM version on yeah. both sides, yeah. those kind of things. So more yeah. assumptions. Yes, that's true. So one, one big theme here is the, having a least common denominator approach. The, the two communication partners should know as little as possible about each other. Right. So that's just principles. Uh, let's now have a look at the, at the patterns. Uh, for me, the three top level, the core patterns in SOA that define SOA as an architectural style are uh, the enterprise service bus as our universal connectivity engine, a multi multi-transport, uh, multiple message exchange patterns. Then we have uh, service composition or process choreography, yep. you know, assembling larger, meaningful units of work from smaller chunks and doing that at... Uh, uh, not not the code level build time, but more more you know runtime, and then the third one would be service repository or service registry, having a directory service, if you will. So that's still you know the, the abstract uh, the IT architect talking, the uh, abstract SOA principles and patterns. Uh, we now come to web services. Uh, web services provides a WS star land, as I call it, yep. provides a set of XML languages, XML based specifications that make these abstract principles and patterns uh, real, implement them in the common programming languages uh, yeah. we're all familiar with, Java, PHP, the Microsoft Word, and so on and so forth. Let's look at some of those specification languages and at those standards. I will have some comments about those languages later. But, Me uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you have. You have to have. I don't have to have. <laughs> um, so, so, so let's start with these different specifications and their role in the overall picture. Um, there's uh, two 
well, there's many <laughs> first observation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, some uh, you might Actually, say too many. Right. I <laughs> uh, no, agree completely, but the thing is, and, you know, they're all optional and they don't depend on each other. So yeah. the specs are loosely coupled, if you will, too. Right. So yeah. let's start with uh, the basics. Basics include, um, of course, uh, uh, the XML language itself. Yeah. And HTTP is our internet uh, you know, transfer protocol. Right. And, and, and if you say XML, then of course what you also say implicitly is probably schema to define yes. the data structures. Yes. Uh, the XML family, there's, right. there's, it's more than just plain XML. Absolutely. XML schema is in the picture too. Well, that's, that's um, uh, not web services specific right. yet. So the two key technologies or key specifications we should focus at now are WSDL. WSDL, the Web Services Description Language, and SOAP, which you might think stands for Simple Object <laughs> Access Protocol. Yeah, we had this joke before. <laughs> Too bad. That's it's one an of my unacronymed acronym or something. Yes, yes. It's one of my favorite jokes. It's neither simple nor object-oriented nor a protocol, so yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. really a good, good uh, acronym, but it's a brand now. It's a name by right, itself. Right, but I think it's undefined. It has started as yes. meaning, blah, 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 but they now defined yes. it as it's like doesn't mean anything. It's just Absolutely. a name. It's just a name. It yeah. used to stand for uh, Simple Object Access Protocol, but since uh, it doesn't qualify, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, but it's a well-known concept. It's just a name now. Since we're talking about SOAP now, it's um, XML language that describes service invocations. So if we, if we now also def briefly define the roles we see in, in, in this integration yeah. technology, we have a service Let's talk about the service consumer and the service provider. Yeah. We could also say client and server right. or use some other terms, but let's stick to provider and consumer. Uh, the consumer articulates a request and says, I want, let's say in the core banking, one of my larger projects was a, a core banking integration solution. I want to implement, I want to receive the account balance for customer Marcus. Uh, this request goes to some service provider, obviously, And it has to be expressed. And traditionally, with EGBs or so, we've done this in binary with binary yeah. protocols, and with SOAP, it's an it's an XML language to express this service request and yeah. also the response. Of course, yeah. that's it. Quite simple concept. Whistle then WSDL uh, is the interface contract language in this in this picture. Yeah. It's a design time technology, if you will. So, yes. you uh, with WSDL you describe uh, you know what are what's the remote function I'm interested in. Or what's the name? Where do I find my, my service provider? Uh, what are the parameters that have to be in the request? In our account balance example, that would be your name, right? Yeah, the name sure. of the customer. Yeah, and then so, so the data whatever. format for that. And then these data formats, in turn, are described indeed in, in XML schema. Yeah. I've worked in, in a number of projects where web services were part of, in some sense. And what I was really frustrated by was the attempt or what was the fact that the languages for defining data structures and data models and operations you call and the interfaces basically are all XML-based. And some of those languages are quite limited. Whistle, for example, only uh, describes a service from the provider's point of view. It doesn't say that the implementation of this thing requires somebody else to talk to. So there's no notion of components. And, and that basically in many ways ruined the project because it was the wrong level of abstraction. So do you think WSDL and some of the other specification languages are really the right level of abstraction to describe the architecture you built or are they rather just an implementation detail of the web services technology? 
Uh, that's a that's a, uh, a wider discussion you're opening up here. And you, you mean we shouldn't? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It'll just take us a couple of minutes. Okay, so we so have a couple of minutes. I would, still, uh, so I would agree um, that uh, it's a it's a fairly low level uh, language. It has yeah. all the details about the invocation parameters, as I said. And and it, it gets even worse. Sorry for interrupting, but it even mixes stuff. It mixes the definition of the of the operations. It talks about physical endpoints. You know, this is different yeah, concerns that are mixed in one thing. Uh, wouldn't, yeah, we can argue about what uh, mixing means. It does okay. it does separate concerns because there are different sections, okay. different XML elements, okay. different sections sure. in the XML yes. document. And yes. if you have good tooling, uh, those things sure. uh, are authored and maintained by, by different roles. Yeah, that's what I was getting so, to. So that's, uh, I don't see that as a big limitation um, since it's well structured, this, yeah. this XML language. Uh, but the, uh, your second point was level of abstraction. Or you know dependencies between services. Uh, how does this uh, uh, this interface contract relate to its implementation? Yeah. That's where uh, where I would argue it's out of scope for Whistle mm -hmm. by design by intent. Okay. Other languages take care of that. So if we look at the dependencies for dynamic dependencies, that would be a, a use case for the business process execution language. Which is another XML language, <coughs> and we'll cover that in a minute. Workflow technologies, <coughs> yep. which helps you assembling larger workflows, business processes from more atomic services. So there you have the, the dynamic dependencies, yep. and then for the components, you have a technology called SCA, the Service right. Component Architecture. Sure. Yet another XML language. Well, SCA goes far beyond being a bunch of XML specifications. Yes, it's more than that. It's a yeah. component model uh, for the service-oriented world. Right. Uh, uh, you can compare it with component models like uh, J2EE or, yeah. or the Core yeah. component model. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. So indeed, it is more than that, but it expresses itself through a set of XML specifications. Yes. Yeah. And this, this language... Uh, addresses or meets that uh, that need you just expressed in your yes, question. Yes, absolutely. In your, your whistle critiquing. Absolutely, and I'm perfectly aware of that. I mean, when they, and I've been talking to my customers back then about the same idea, and then when I saw the SCA spec, I thought, ha finally, finally wrote, somebody wrote it down. Mm -hmm. So at some point, we'll have to have an episode on SCA. Um, but, um, okay, let's get back to where sure. we were. Uh, stop the tangent. Um, specifically, uh, one more thing about SOAP. Um, there are two different styles, right? There is the RPC Indeed. style and the doc document yes. literal style. Document literal, that's what, 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 what is it about? Yeah, it's two, if you will, it's two, uh, two accents, two dialects in that XML language to express the, the service invocation. Um, we don't have to go into technical details now. It's a conscious design decision. The Whistle editor, the person describing, defining the service contract, has to make The very early implementations of uh, SOAP favored the RPC encoded model, which was based on its own data model. It did not use XML schema for historical reasons. It was there way too early. Yeah. So in my early production projects, uh, back in 2001, 2002, we did use this communication mode, uh, which is now um, obsolete, I would, I would argue. Uh, the main stacks and also the open source implementations of SOAP and Whistle clearly favor the document literal style, which is also blessed by the WSI interoperability organization. Yeah, that's so a good point. We should mention that yes, later, yes. WSI. Yeah. So the clear best practice recommendation today is do use wrapped document literal unless uh, old SOAP engine or whistle tool you right. have in your solution architecture and you cannot replace by something more modern really forces you to go RPC encoded. With that style, we do have excellent uh, results in terms of you know, achieving interoperability. For example, something I demonstrated here at Uppsala in my, in my tutorial. We show a PHP page talking to a Java service provider. 
uh, and it works seamlessly. I've been upgrading this tutorial for a number of years now, yeah. and it takes me you know, an hour or so every year just to yeah. upgrade to the latest versions, and it's still perfectly interoperable. So. Cool. And that's also true for, for the biggest interoperability problem, with, this, with, with which is Java and Microsoft Worlds. Yes, indeed. That's one of the classical use cases. In fact, that's what we what was one of the main drivers for this web services technology at that core banking uh, right. integration solution I talked about. They do have Microsoft front-ends. They also have Java front-ends, but their, yeah. their middle tier is a Java WebSphere, WebSphere Java middle tier. Yeah. So it's a very very nice, uh, very elegant integration solution to connect the, the Microsoft technology stack with uh, the Java world. Lightweight, interoperable, um, and um, also, you know, um, performing well. And one, mm -hmm. one critique we frequently hear... That's a good hear, point, yeah. XML, of course, is a verbose language, so some, some best practices do apply for not making the service contracts and later the, the SOAP envelopes too, too chatty. If you follow these best practices uh, or these design guidelines, uh, you do get uh, performance uh, numbers in the same order of magnitude as you get with, uh, when calling an IIOP. Right, an, an EGB over IIOP. Yeah, and, and the core, of course, to designing interface in the correct way is this thing that you don't have fine granular like set name, set first name, but Absolutely. rather you have data transfer objects with a bunch of stuff in it that go over the network as one hop. The very fine-grained operations might be fine if you're in a local, uh, in sure. your lower levels of your if your if your application. But once you go remote, uh, uh, Fowler's first law of distribution applies: yeah. the <laughs> best remote call is the one you don't make. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So all the general, you know, good architectural principles are still perfectly valid but that's, that's uh, independent of the, of the implementation technology in use. Same holds true for, for the rest, uh, rest of Farians, yeah, by and, the way. And also same, for same advice. Same for Corba, yeah. same story here. I mean, if you look at how, how the use of Corba evolved over time, it was also from distributed objects that had state and were fine-grained to more a service-oriented kind of thing where you'd have stateless things that were coarse-grained with, with data transfer objects going around. So, I mean, yeah. Yes, I agree completely. We talked already before about WSTL, or I should say Whistle, to make it sound professional. Yes. Um, so probably that's how you find people who don't know what they're talking about if they say <laughs> WSTL. Yeah, um, it's part of being you know, a member of the community or sharing yeah. the secret key, like using these uh, funny uh, pronunciations of the standards, Whistle, right. BPEL, and so on yeah. and so forth. Before we talked already briefly, or we mentioned those different sections of stuff that go yes. into a Whistle file, um, Let's look at them a little bit more closely so we understand what it actually takes to call a remote service, to describe the service we can call. Roughly speaking, there's three top-level elements. I talked about the separation of concerns. Yep. You have the port type, which is the abstract definition of the, of the service contract. And Whistle 2.0, this is now called interface. Used Makes to be sense. One, one, one is the mainstream version we see in, in, in Project Reality. There's the port type. So the port type has... Things like the data types for the in and out messages. Which would be XML schema documents? That are defined in XML schema, absolutely. So you can have a repetition, you can have aggregation, the usual data modeling concepts. You do have the, the messages themselves, right? So you can go one way or request reply by having in and out message or defining the, the in and out messages yep. appropriately. Yep. That's about it already. There's an intermediate construct called operation, which bundles an in and an out message. Right. Uh, and that's, But only that's typically one the in and out message, so it's really more a, a, a trivial message exchange pattern. Correct. It's request reply or one way. In theory, there's two more and defined in a specification, but in practice, uh, only these two are in use. So that's the port type. Totally abstract. doesn't talk about any transport protocol or implementation technology at all. It's just XML. Then we have the binding. As of today, there's only one 
fully standardized binding, but vendors and open source uh, communities have added proprietary bindings. Mm -hmm. The only standardized one is the one to HTTP. It translates the abstract port type operations into concrete HTTP protocol primitives. And that's where this uh, this uh, communication style, communication mode we talked about, document literal and RPC encoded comes into play. Yeah. That's normally taken care of by tools. So as, a, as an application developer or a service modeler, you don't have to worry about these details too much. It's good to have a conceptual understanding, but in, uh, in general, um, the tools and the runtimes uh, will, will take care of that. Yeah. Third part is the, is the port. The port has the actual instance of the service, so it has an address, a transport-level address. Like an IP address and a port. Yes, a URL, basically, well, yeah, URI. So, yeah. um, in, in case of the SOAP HTTP binding, I should say, yeah. if you go yeah, through right. a message queue, then you will have the name of the message queue yeah. there. Uh, well, that's about it. So, and of course, the, the the service references the binding, and the binding references the the port type. I would argue this is a modular structure. You can even split it up into different files. Sure, but exactly that's maybe the point. If you keep that in one file and make that the master, then you have a mess. If you keep that as an implementation file that's generated or otherwise created from higher level authoring tools, models, whatever, then you're probably safe to go. Yes, yeah. uh, that, that was the fight yes. I was fighting and lo yes. lost. So <laughs> it has to be, you know, uh, it has to be integrated into the overall uh, development chain, if you will, whether it's a model-driven approach whatever. you're following yeah. or or you, know, you, you do have your, your development guidelines and a deployment strategy, so yeah. it does have to be placed there. It's not, it's not a, uh, you know, take some wizard from, from the Eclipse uh, yeah, project sure. and, and apply it. And, and yeah. It's a software engineering tool, so it does have to be placed appropriately yeah. in this overall tool chain in your project. One thing I would briefly want to address is we already mentioned the term message exchange protocol uh, or message messaging, message exchange pattern, I should say. And... Um, The one defined here is operation, basically in, out, or just in. Correct. Um, of course, in practice, what you want is define more complex protocols. Like you send this message in, and then you get either either this one, or in case of an error, the other one, and then you have to reply with this other message, for which you then get this other acknowledgement. So these more complicated protocols are not defined in Whistle, right? Correct. Then uh, you would use uh, you would be using other languages yeah. to express this this sounds like a conversation to me what you're describing. Absolutely. Yes, right. So it's a, it's a higher level protocol that's going on here. If yep. you look at Gregor Hoppe's uh, ongoing work uh, on on conversation patterns, right. there there are other languages, uh, namely BPEL, the business process execution language, yep. and then also WSCDL uh, that uh, that take that role. So we've had Gregor on the show, but he talked about his message, messaging stuff. We briefly mentioned the the choreography or the well the, the the messaging in-out choreography uh -huh. stuff. Maybe we'll have him back at some point. Okay, the next core technology that maybe isn't as important as the other ones, but is still there, is UDDI. Yes, we can cut that one really short. Yeah. <laughs> Useless, <laughs> well, the this, no. <laughs> the conceptual need is there. Uh, if uh, anybody remembers, uh, when we talked about the definition of SOA from an IT architect's perspective, I did mention three top-level patterns, and service registry or repository was one of them. Right In a, in a distributed computing environment, you do want to you know, have a directory or uh, a broker that knows where all the possible or available service providers are, yep. uh, what they can do, and, and, and where they are located. So or the original idea of this UDDI technology, Universal Description, Discovery, and Integration, is to provide this registry role. It's, uh, it's a data model standardized by OASIS, and it has a SOAP API. So you can talk to this registry through the same technology uh, you use to talk to any other service in the web services-based SOA. 
Whistle and Soap are mainstream these days, yeah. I would say. Many, many production references, uh, lots of tools, lots of programmers using it. UDDI hasn't really made it. I did help one uh, customer from the chemical industry put an, a UDDI registry into production. So there are some use cases here and there, high availability scenarios, for example. Yeah. Um, like find find a backup service, right? Yeah. Uh, but there, it turned out that this data, the data model in UMI is a complex and b very unflexible, yeah. uh, and also the API is quite cumbersome to use. So this technology didn't really take off. Uh, it's it's there. Uh, products are there. Um, the standard is ready, version three, but it, it's not a mainstream technology. Maybe that there is also some other problem with it. I mean that you need some kind of naming service that 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 translates readable names into low-level addresses. Well, we have that on the internet. We've had it in Carbas, so that's kind of trivial. We need that in some sense. Yes. Um, but um, the idea behind UDDI, UDDI probably was also this. You know, they have this universe worldwide. Everybody advertises their services, and it's described with metadata. And then you discover it, and you know you need to buy something, and you find the service and. This I don't know. Indeed, indeed, it's not just uh, my critique uh, was a technology level critique. It's a right. Data model inflexible and complex, uh, but you're not talking about the business model or the the, yeah, you know, the decision exactly. driver for yeah. introducing this technology. Absolutely. So the this dream of you know the universal computing cloud, total service virtualization, uh, it's one of the tenets of SOA, but uh, we're not there yet. No. Uh, so dynamic runtime discovery, you don't switch to another uh, core banking service provider no. just because it advertises good rates right. on the internet. I mean, it's a trust, security, Absolutely. blah, blah, all that stuff. Data quality, uh, uh, lots of issues, uh, which are not necessarily technical. It has more to do with the business model Absolutely. behind it. Absolutely, yes. So that's another reason this, uh, this technology didn't take off. I'd like to mention a third one, <laughs> which is uh, there is a need for registry, as we said. Yes. Right? Uh, we, we do want to decouple. We do want to have yeah. location transparency. But there's, as you pointed out already, Markus, there's uh, other technologies that can play that role. Uh, we've been doing this for, for, for a long time. Ages, so yeah. Several of my, my, my larger customers, uh, including the core banking uh, service provider, they, they already had their homegrown registry. In their case, it's an XML-centric database with a ni very nice HTML developer front end. Yeah. They do build-time lookups. Uh, they have invested in, this, in, in, their, in their registry, which is uh, just fine for their purpose. So there was absolutely no need to, to introduce this standards-based technology into the, into the solution architecture. Yeah. Yeah. And that holds true for many uh, project examples. So we already talked about the business model and the issue of trust. We need to talk about security. Let's look about two ways of securing web services. One is um, simply running it over HTTPS, HTTPS, basically, and the other one is uh, the WS security specifications. So let's maybe briefly start with a kind of simple one. Right. That's what everybody uh, uses these days. Uh, you know, we have all done our, our web applications and, and uh You know, e-commerce solutions or so, so yeah. we're all quite familiar, at least as in customer role, with uh, URLs that start with HTTPS. So it's a transport-level technology um, that can give you both client and server-side uh, authentication as well as encryption, which addresses security requirements like uh, integrity, confidentiality, uh, to name just two. Uh, there's uh, mature and proven infrastructure for this in all our e-business websites. And since Wizdle has the SOAP HTTP binding, It works just fine in uh, HTTPS works just fine for for web services invocations. So this is the the clear recommendation. Uh, if there are if the security requirements are there, uh, to go with HTTPS uh, whenever possible. The only 
little drawback is it's point to point, right? So the, you can't have mm -hmm. one of the things SOAP brings to the picture is, I didn't mention that, is the concept of a SOAP header. So you can have intermediaries uh, over multiple hops, you can redirect the service invocation. And if you use HTTPS, you have to break the, the secure connection at each and every intermediary. So if, if you have a multi-hop scenario, which very few people have these days, and you have a requirement for end-to-end -end security, then HTTPS is not going to cut it, which leads us to the next technology, WS security, which actually is not one technology, but a huge, huge set of specifications. Yeah. If uh, anybody cares uh, in, uh, in uh, perspectives on web services, uh, the textbook uh, I put together with a couple of colleagues... Uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. ...back in 2003. Yeah. Uh, still... Uh, surprisingly up-to-date <laughs> all our architectural <laughs> advice and our, our best practices are still uh, very much appreciated by yeah. project teams as of today anyway uh, in there we have a, uh, a diagram that uh, lists all these specifications there's quite a few <laughs> it's a comprehensive solution wow. to, let's think positive yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, all uh, xml based again right and uh, all all security requirements addressed fairly complex algorithms uh, yeah. very configurable very yeah. flexible Can, can we maybe like give a 10-15 second uh, statement about each of those, what they do? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, the stick important to, let's stick ones? to the ones we can compare with, uh, uh, with what HTTPS brings to the table. Sure. So okay. the, this is message level security. Yeah. So the WS security specifications uh, use XML signatures and XML encryption uh, to achieve the same, the same results. Great. Signature gives me uh, integrity. So I, I can be sure that nobody has tampered with my message. Uh, Authentication is yet another set of specs. Mm -hmm. Encryption gives me uh, uh, confidentiality, absolutely. Uh, I can be sure that nobody's reading the data I'm, I'm transferring. So the algorithms here are a little different. Um, uh, the, the key schemes uh, uh, being used, so mm -hmm. which makes this an expensive technology, not just for the implementers of this technology stack. There is vendor support now, as well as open source support for all these specifications. But still... Um, They're not as mainstream as the core SOAP and Whistle specifications. We do have project use for them. Uh, it turned out that uh, there's a performance penalty you have to be aware of. Significant. It's in at least one order of magnitude. But there's, uh, uh, we, see, we see customers using hardware accelerators for that. Right, so, yeah. yes, we have, a, we have a hardware ESP, mm -hmm. uh, data power, that also does... Uh, support the WS security specifications. Okay. So the best practice here would be if you really have a need for message level security, you're in a multi-hop scenario, but you have an end-to-end -end confidentiality requirement, do go for WS security, but uh, be ready for introducing a hardware accelerator. Right, okay. What is SAML, SAML? I've heard that a couple of times. SAML is the Structured Assertion Markup Language, uh -huh. if I remember correctly. Just a transport mechanism that uh, allows you to talk to any uh, I uh, identity manager and access manager Uh, things we were already using okay. uh, in, in web services applications. So this is uh, in response to the authentication uh, authorization requirement. Yeah, there's also a WS authorization thing, so it's probably... Yeah, that, one, that is one of the less, less popular specifications in this, in this space. Yeah, and so is probably WS policy, security policy. Just to give people an, an impression, right. there is WS privacy, WS secure conversation, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I haven't read all of those. I've put a number of SOAs, web services-based SOAs in production. I've had a quick look at WS security, but that's the only one I looked at. So one of the things that... Uh, Uh, I don't like about the, the uh, SOAP versus REST discussion that's going on is this WS star page count. People just print the specifications and say this is complex. These ones are optional, right? Uh, right. You don't have to use them. If you compare the same things, yeah. which for, for uh, Whistle SOAP would be uh, 
going over HTTPS. Uh, as I said earlier, the, the, the technologies are remarkably similar and this complexity argument uh, falls apart from yeah. my point of view. Yeah. So I would view them as clearly as optional, these, these additional specifications in the WS security space. There is a, a kind of standardized, um, let's say, best practice WSI, the Web Service Interoperability Standard. Um, basically, it tells you which of those things you can use so you're interoperable. Yes, uh, that's that's uh, one of the rules. It's um, it's like it's a meta standard, if you will. Right. Yes. Oh, ah. <laughs> so yeah, bad term. Yeah. But no, they, they've done a fine job. They're really uh, they've designed uh, their work in use case driven. So they have a realistic sample scenario which gets used quite a bit uh, mm -hmm. for interoperability tests and so on. Yeah. So it's a group of uh, industry players. It's an open and non-profit organization. And they, they take in the existing WS star specifications, the important ones, like SOAP, like Whistle, also WS security, and put them together and make sure that, there is, that they work together, that uh, any ambiguities you, you frequently find mm -hmm. in, in industry uh, or in, in, in any, any result from a, from a standardization effort, right. that these are removed. They do have a, a nice suite of test tools so yep. you can really prove that your, that your solutions uh, are WSI compliant. And this, this, all this is reported through uh, what they call the WSI basic profile. So the organization is the WSI, Web Services Interoperability. And the most important deliverable is the WSI basic profile. Yeah. And we have additional ones. Take the word profile literally. It, it references the official specifications, right. profiles them, rules out some constructs. Right. For example, they say SOAP RPC encoded bad, SOAP RPC uh, document literal good. That's the kind of best practice you were you were heading for. They're also, I think, simplifying or ruling out some aspects of XML schema Indeed. because I mean schemas can be yes. terribly complex. Absolutely, that's also one one area uh, where the uh, this this technology uh, uh, is critiqued. Uh, XML schemas too complex. I, I say yes, it's very powerful. And if you, if you print that spec out, uh, you end up with a couple hundred pages. But if you stick to I call that the the eighty twenty rules eighty twenty rule for standards adoption. If you stick to the mainstream and just apply some common sense and don't overmodel, right? <laughs> don't go to the edges of the specification. Yeah. Yes, there's fifteen ways to express uh, repetition, like what in in Java would be an array. There's about ten ten to twelve ways to do this yeah. in XML schema. Yeah. But you don't need all of those. Pick the one that has best interoperability characteristics. Profile XML schema, if you will, for your project, and you're fine. Yeah. That's what we did on our yeah. on our projects. We did this too. Yeah. Let's now look a little bit at the key architectural decisions that you have to make. You already talked about this notion of architectural decisions before. Uh, let's outline some of them so we get a feel for the process you go through when building a web service-based SOA solution. So let's classify them according to, uh, to the technologies we talked about. Let's start with uh, the whistle contract. And one word about this term we're using here, architectural decisions. Yeah. Not a new concept, uh, but surprisingly little literature and tool support. It's actually one of my research topics these days. There's a paper by Philippe Kruchten, who's one of the fathers of the rational unified yep. process, who argues, yes, we have UML modeling, the 4 plus 1 view and software architecture, but we totally forgot to model architectural decisions, or ca at least capture them. So capture the process as opposed to capture the result. Right. Well, there's process, uh, like the rub is a process. No, no, but I that's mean too the high process level. to get to an architecture Correct. by deciding. Correct. Yeah. The rationale, uh, the, re the justification right, exactly, for your yes. design decisions and yeah. the, the dependencies between the decisions. So if we go back to, to web services now. Well, architectural decisions uh, I define, or my litmus test is things I, in my previous role as a solution architect, uh, had to worry about, uh, which I would decide myself or with, together with the customer, sure. or I would uh, let a, a lead developer or the development team decide and then, and then at least review. 
So for Wizzle, Wizzle is about modeling the service contract. So one important decision is which tools to use and where to start. Do you start from some programming language artifacts? Yes. That would be a contract body. first versus... Contract yeah. first versus contract last. That's what it boils down to, absolutely. Yep. The official best practice is go top-down, contract yeah. first. Use, use a Wizzle editor, uh, 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 write your contract, and then generate code. Uh, I do like it, but there's a little bit of a, a learning curve. Many options, indeed, and, and you're not familiar with the concepts. I would clearly not recommend to write X, the XML by hand. No, 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 no. Well, sure. Some people I mean, do that. Okay, I mean, project teams stupid. do that, and then yeah, they complain I mean, about the complexity of the technology. Yeah, so that's sure, ridiculous. I mean, uh, what I did in, on my first project was uh, I started from some programming language artifacts, component interfaces, if you will, sure, Java yeah. interfaces, let a bottom-up uh, Java to Whistle generator run, and then I looked at uh, what I got. And I didn't blindly put that into the registry and, and write yeah. a client against it. Uh, what you have to watch out for is proprietary data types and language contracts that right. sneak in yes. to your service contract. So things like a Java hash map you don't want to see in your, in your Whistle contract. So that's the first architecture decision here, top-down versus bottom-up or yeah. contract first versus contract last. Uh, then, of course, you have to worry about uh, things like granularity and naming. So a couple more, but this is uh, you know, uh, standard uh, contract design, if you will. Nothing special for yeah. web services. You know, the technical part, editing or generating the whistle is the, is the easy part. So let's have a quick look at the next uh, technology, which was uh, SOAP, or message exchange uh, language. Uh, we did cover one architecture decision already, the communication mode, document literal versus RPC yep. encoded. Clearly qualifies as architecture decision because it has to do with interoperability and things like that. Then, of course, we, uh, we have the very important one, the transport protocol selection. Right, which is probably in most cases HTTPS anyway. HTTP or HTTPS. Well, I was the explicitly mentioning the S, so I think HTTPS is probably what you mostly want. Well, it depends. If you don't have any security requirements... Or and where is a, that the case? Don't assume you're running over the internet. Oh, so... Oh, so yeah, you might well, have a, like mm, an extranet okay. or like uh, doing all your security uh, protection on the network layer, VPN. Okay, or, or okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Things okay. like that. Yeah. And then you don't need it. Okay. Mm. Um, so that's a choice. Uh, the other option is, uh, if we just compare the transport protocol, HTTP, the other option is to go through a message queue. Uh, right. Technology like JMS uh, comes into play here. This, by the way, is one of these uh, cases where in the, uh, if you use REST, this architectural decision has been made for you. Yeah, it absolutely. will be HTTP, full stop. With WS star, you have freedom of choice as opposed to freedom from yeah. choice. That's actually a good point. In both of the projects I was involved that had to do with reasonably sized SOAs, both of them went through messaging middleware. Yeah, very common. Uh, only downside, this binding is not standardized yet. Not sure, but by I mean, WSI. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, as long as the technology stacks you're working with uh, support it and you get it interoperable, yes. uh, you're fine. Absolutely. So that's the, the second important one. Then I'd like to mention uh, compression. So one of the neat things of uh, going through a standard transport technology is that uh, anything the HTTP server can do for you is available. So yes, XML is verbose and uh, often you know, response messages, if you search for all customers starting uh, whose last name starts with an M <laughs> in, that, in that bank I talked about, yeah. you, know, you, get, you do get a, a large XML document bank. Yes, you, you can have like a cursor concept in your service yeah, contract sure, or so, yeah. but what you can also do is compress your, uh, your re uh, response message. So that's another architecture decision to be made. Right. Transactionality also comes to my mind. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about it at all so far. That's one big difference between REST and SOAP. This yeah. is one, as you can tell, this is one of my favorite topics yeah. these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a paper about it. With REST, you're on your own. Uh, you implement uh, transaction management yourself yeah. using some APIs. 
in web services land, you have support from additional standards, namely WS atomic transaction. What does it do? WS I mean, coordination. It, does it only transport a, a, a transaction token so you can coordinate transactions? Or WSAT is pretty much um, uh, enables a, a web service provider to play in a in an in an XA in a two PC uh, game. Yep. Okay. So first commit. Yes. Yes. Nothing special there. This is one option, or one uh, architecture decision. Yeah. Do I use this technology or not? We can argue about long-running uh, service invocations or long-running conversations. That's the other thing, yeah. You might compensating need transactions, you might blah, blah. Need, you might need higher-level concepts. Yeah. You might do something on the application level. Right. I mean, two PC doesn't really go together well with loose coupling. Correct. Well, um, it does couple consumer and provider tightly from a transaction management perspective. Loose coupling is one of these overloaded terms. Yeah, that's different true. dimensions. Yeah, so yeah, sure. yeah. Loose coupling in, in terms of availability or time is different from transactional yes. coupling. To quote uh, Gregor Hoppe, uh, he says, uh, the, o the, the only real loose coupling is if you don't talk at all. Right? Yeah. The only, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, It's always a dependency. Yes, there's yeah. always a dependency. If you, if you call a, yeah. a service, you do have to send data and you're expecting data back there. There you go, you're coupled right? sure, in another yes. dimension. So, Indeed, um, uh, system transactions, in a, in a, if you have longer running scenarios, like a business process that runs for a couple of days or so, then it's not a good idea to keep the system transaction context open for yeah. that, such a long period of time and, yeah. and compensation and other things come into play. But you do want to worry when writing, when designing a service operation, whatever transport protocol or interface contract language you use, you do want to consciously decide whether this operation is able to share an incoming transaction context mm -hmm. Uh, or opens its own one or runs yeah. non-transactional. Important architecture decision, uh, uh, easily forgotten when working with all these tools. Okay, so these were some of the important architectural decisions. So let's uh, summarize uh, the, the discussion about architectural decisions. We just okay. picked, in the interest of time, we could only pick two or three here. Yeah. Of course, for all of those, there's a number of decision drivers. The patterns community would call these forces. Right. These are non-function requirements, function requirements, general software quality factors. I would argue that total automation, uh, uh, you know, hoping that this technology we're talking about here, web services, can, can make all these decisions for you. Yeah. It's naive. For us as architects and software engineers, yeah. it's job security. This uh, is an architectural thinking exercise that's required. What tools can do is um, do the grunt work. enforce decisions once they have been made, but they can also inform you what you have to worry about. So yeah. one of the biggest benefits of SOA as an architectural style and web services technologies for me as a solution architect is that I do know more about the runtime I'm designing against. Same thing as with the J2E application server. I do know the patterns in, in that application server, so right. I can, based on experience from previous projects, I can anticipate uh, what will have to be decided. I can make this, the, the background information reusable. I can talk to my colleagues on other projects and say, hey, how have you decided? Are you making your web service operation transactional or not? In the beginning, we said there's no greenfield. Right? Yep. We are just reassembling existing p bits and pieces. Yep. If we talk the same language, uh, because we've standardized the runtime, what we do with SOA, life as an architect gets a lot easier. So what I've done is I've collected, uh, I've looked at my client projects, development projects through the rearview mirror and collected an asset of, at the moment, about 300 architecture decisions. 300? Don't panic. Not <laughs> cool. all of them have to do with... Uh, Uh, with web services contract design. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an asset to have something it's, like that. It's a, it's a reusable asset and we're, we're uh, hoping to go public with selected content cool. uh, end of the year. Let me know that's when it. and where we'll put a pointer yeah. on it. So the idea is to guide the decision makers, the architects, through the, for example, pattern selection process. Right. Uh, it's complementary to what the pattern community does. That's ex exactly the point. Yesterday I talked to people, he asked me what SOA is all about and I said blah, 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 architectural style. He says, where's the pattern? 
Where are the patterns yeah. that describe it? So well, they're, they're, the patterns are coming. There's yeah. some good books in the works. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned Gregor's, uh, Gregor's yes, efforts. for example. Yeah. And there's some other good books in the works. And uh, since uh, I made that comment, and uh, SOA stands for same old architecture, a lot of the general purpose patterns, Broker from Posa is from 98 or so, yeah, sure. they're, they're still perfectly valid. That's in fact um, a little section I have in my, in my tutorial, so it's, and it'll be available for download uh, on, on the website, by the way, the Uppsala tutorial we'll I'm, put I'm giving here. And um, the point I was trying to make is um, these architectural decisions, uh, well, you cannot make the actual decision reusable. That is yeah, no, sure, driven yeah. by project requirements. And, but you can do the background research. That, yeah. that, that, that's a reusable asset. And the, the other side effect is uh, to come to the best practices. Uh, yeah. uh, often the best practices are stated without architectural context. People give PowerPoint presentations or, yeah. or, or, or uh, write a little two-page article on the web or so yeah. and just say, you should do this and that. And I would argue that this is uh, not very professional. Uh, as we know from, from patterns templates, yeah. you do want to have an, a context. You want to be very clear when your advice, and you could view a pattern as a big best practice. Yesterday I gave a tutorial on documenting software architectures here mm -hmm. at Uppsala, and one of the things I said is you should, whenever you document an architectural thing or decision, use the pattern form. Give a context, yes. give the forces, state the problem crisply, give a short solution, and then discuss the trade-offs. Do you do that on your project? Do well, you have it the depends. Time? No, well, I mean, uh, my role is not necessarily always documenting these things, so I have different roles in projects, uh -huh. but I actually did that in one project, and in another one I used some of the other advice I gave, but you know how it is. I mean, yes, Time's, time is precious, yes. right? We're jumping to the next project. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. As a consultant, no, you're often two, not in that there's role. There's two big inhibitors for architectural, retrospective architectural decision capturing. Uh, one is... Uh, Uh, no appreciation by stakeholders. It takes time. Yeah. It takes time out of uh, precious project budgets yeah. and lack of immediate benefits. It's yeah. the next generation, the maintenance people uh, that benefit. So my trick is, as I argue, um, that retrospective decision capturing doesn't work, but proactive decision identification Guidance, modeling, yeah. uh, anticipating what will have to be decided, do all the hard work once and make that a reusable asset yeah. has, has yeah. more chances of getting Absolutely. accepted in practice. Okay, we're running out of time. I have one last question. Why should I care? Why is that not just the middleware I use and plug into? Why do I need to know these things as an architect? <laughs> Well, I think we've given the answer with our little discussion about decision drivers, mm -hmm. forces, and architectural decisions that are required. When, when you press that button, the tool makes some architectural decisions for you, which will have an impact on the non-functional characteristics of the system you're building. So performance, scalability, uh, data integrity, uh, security, all those kind of things will be influenced by what you do there on that high level. Yeah. If you totally trust your tool and it's fit for purpose… Right. Uh, all right, but in reality, uh, you do need some flexibility. Um, so you do care about these uh, about these conscious decisions, and the technology here helps you uh, um, makes your life easier because um, many decisions are made for you already. Uh, some of the best practices for yep. integration are incorporated into yep. the specs and the tools. So you're more you're more productive. Um, you can you can count on on vendors and open source communities to do some of the real hard groundwork for you. You're integrating on a higher level of abstraction, if you will, if you use these principles yep. and, and uh, uh, technologies. Okay, so I'm looking really forward to the being available of those best practices in some shape or form. I think we will most likely publish this episode maybe after they are available, so we can put the link to the show notes. Perfect. Thank you, Olaf, for being on the show. Thank you very much, Markus. Enjoyed it very much.
Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.